The scripture reading for today is selected verses from Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with them. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracle to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke in Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. 
We are continuing our sermon series to the book of Acts, called The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the apostles or the early church go, they turn things upside down. They reject worldly kingdoms for Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that grows not through avoiding difficulty or avoiding pain, but through facing suffering and persecution head-on. And one of the most significant examples of persecution and suffering in the book of Acts is the stoning of Stephen. We also see that it's one of the most significant speeches in the book of Acts. It's the longest speech, in fact. And this story about the stoning of Stephen is actually a turning point in Acts. Um, if you remember Acts 1.8, uh, Acts 1.8 is an outline of the entire book. And Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so Acts is broken into these three sections, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the end of the earth. And this passage, the stoning of Stephen, is what leads to the switch from focusing on Jerusalem to beginning to spread the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And so we're going to look a little bit more closely at the stoning of Stephen, and as we do, we'll have three points. The temple the righteous one, and the great persecution. So let's begin with our first point, the temple. When I was working for a church in Seattle, I was there during a season where the church was selling their current building in order to buy and move into a bigger building. And there were a lot of moving pieces, but one of them was that they needed to find someone to buy their current building in order to have enough money to purchase the new building. And the ideal situation would have been for another church to buy the building. But what ended up happening was that an organization that was not a church, that wasn't even Christian, bought the building. And that was a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. You know, there were several people in the church whose parents had literally built that church with their own hands. And now, decades later, it was going to be used for something other than the gathering of God's people to worship. And a lot of people wondered, is that okay? Is God okay with this? Are we dishonoring a holy place by selling it to a non-Christian organization? Get back to that story later. In our passage, Stephen is accused of dishonoring a holy place, the temple. In chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, it says, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're accusing him of speaking against the temple. That's what this holy place refers to. Of saying that Jesus will destroy the temple. And so what's the big deal about the temple? Well, the temple was a huge deal to Israel. It's the center of religious life for them. It's where worship and sacrifices happen. The temple is the dwelling place of God. You may be wondering, wait a minute, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't he everywhere? Well, yes. Yes, he is. God is present everywhere, but everywhere is not his dwelling place. Throughout Scripture, there are specific places that God has designated as his dwelling place, somewhere where he is especially 
presence, you could say, or where his covenant presence is. And so, better understand the temple, let's, let's trace through the dwelling places of God throughout Scripture. It, it all starts in Genesis 1 and 2, in the Garden of Eden. God dwells with Adam and Eve in the Garden. That's where the tree of life is, it's where God dwells. And in a lot of ways, the tabernacle and the temple, which came later, uh, but in a lot of ways, the tabernacle and the temple were designed with the Garden of Eden in mind. They were each dedicated over the course of six days, with a seventh day for rest, just like how God created in the beginning. And the entrance of each tabernacle and the temple faced east, because that's the direction that the Lord cast out Adam and Eve, to the east, east of Eden. And so by making the entrance of the tabernacle and the temple face east, it's kind of like they're re-entering the garden every time they enter the tabernacle or enter the temple. It's a going back to paradise, back to the dwelling place of God. Because, of course, Adam and Eve were cast out of God's dwelling place. They were cast out of Eden. And for a while, there was no dwelling place of God among humans. He would just sort of appear from time to time to specific people, but he didn't have a dwelling place among them, somewhere that you could go and know for sure that he was always there in a special way, in a covenantal way, until the tabernacle. And we see the same designed and built in the book of Exodus. As the Israelites are being led from Egypt to the promised land, God has them build a dwelling place for him so that he can always be with them as they go. And that's why the tabernacle is mobile. It's more like a big tent that you can put up, take down, move, put up again wherever you go next. It's referred to as a tent of meeting sometimes, or in verse 44 of our passage, the tent of witness, tabernacle. But then eventually, once Israel is more established as a nation in the land, they build a more permanent dwelling place for God in Jerusalem, the temple. The King David designs it and raises the funds for it, and then ultimately it's built when his son Solomon is king. And it's not a tent, it's not mobile, it's made of stone, and it's permanently anchored in Jerusalem. Except not that permanent, because it actually gets destroyed by the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Israelites off into exile. Eventually, the people make their way back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. But when they rebuild the temple, in the book of Ezra, God's holy presence doesn't seem to return to it. Now, when the tabernacle and the first temple were built and dedicated, there was always this obvious moment where God's presence would appear and descend like fire. But that doesn't happen for the second temple. But still, a lot of people are overjoyed and celebrate that they have this new temple, that they built this second temple. Which is a little bit sad, and there are people present who are sad. And it's sad because they're essentially rejoice, rejoicing in the work of their own hands. They don't seem to care that much that God hasn't showed up. They've built a dwelling place for God, but he doesn't seem to be dwelling there. And pride in that temple remains through Jesus' day and our passage with Stephen and Acts. That's why they're so offended at the suggestion that that temple might be destroyed. For them, the temple is a point of pride. Our ancestors built this with their own hands. How could you dare speak against it? But listen to what Stephen says in verses 44 through 47. 
Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was as with the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And it was Solomon who built a house for him. Essentially, Stephen is saying, these were all fine and good. The tabernacle and the temple were good, and God instructed the people to build them, and they did. He's not against the temple per se, but he continues in verses 48 and 50. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And before the sermon, but he quotes Isaiah 66, which is our call to worship. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So what's Stephen's point? Stephen's point is that while the temple and the tabernacle were good, and God did dwell in them at certain points in redemptive history, at the end of the day, God doesn't ultimately dwell in houses made by human hands. He's not confined to these spaces. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Any temple that you would build are made out of things that God actually made himself. The stones that make up the temple, I made them, God says. You think that the dwelling place of God is about a building, then you're missing the point. This begins to be perfectly clear to the person of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says about Jesus that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwelt could actually be translated tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Jesus, God's dwelling place is a person. God incarnate. God come to earth to be with his people. But that's not all. What did Jesus begin to build? A new temple. But not a temple built with human hands out of stone, a temple built by Jesus out of people, living stones, as 1 Peter 2, 4 puts it. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is the new temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the whole structure. Each Christian is like a stone built upon Jesus into a holy temple. The Holy Spirit dwelling within each believer unites us to Christ and to one another as a holy temple. Let me say this another way. You are the temple. Each one of you, if you are in Christ, is a living stone built on top of Christ, the cornerstone, which together with all other believers in the world throughout history, makes up the whole temple. And so you see, it was okay for my church in Seattle to sell their building to a non-Christian organization because it wasn't the building that made the people holy, it was the people that made the building holy. The people of God, with the Holy, the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, uniting them to Jesus and to one another. They were the church. They were what made the building a church building. And God is far more concerned with dwelling within people than dwelling in this building or that building. The people were the true dwelling place of God. So, right here, right now, 
Same sort of thing is going on. This building is not a church six days a week. It's Fremont Adult Continuing Education, part of Fremont Unified School District. But from 10.30 a.m. to noon on Sundays, it transforms. It becomes holy because you're here. For 90 minutes or so, this space is where heaven meets earth. God dwells here. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them, Jesus says. This place is holy because you are here. And Christ is united to you. We are the dwelling place of God, God's people, his church. What do you mistake for the true dwelling place of God? You know, just like Stephen's accusers were obsessed with a particular building when the true temple was Jesus and the church that he was building by the Holy Spirit, what do you mistake for the dwelling place of God? You know, maybe nature? Now look, we live in a beautiful place, and God did make it, and it does reflect his glory, but as much as I might want to go on a bike ride around the Marin Headlands this morning, that's not God's dwelling place. That's not where he's chosen to dwell. His people are where he has chosen to dwell. What do you mistake for the true dwelling place of God? Or like the Israelites who rebuilt the temple in Ezra. Do you ever find yourself rejoicing in the work of your own hands, but not caring so much about whether or not God is present? You know, what might that look like? Maybe caring more about how many people attend a Sunday morning worship service than you care about how many people are coming to faith through the church. Or maybe caring more about hiring a new pastor than you care about the spiritual health of our community. Those aren't mutually exclusive, but you see how you can easily misprioritize what you care about. You care more about God's dwelling place than the work of human hands, God's presence over what we can do in our own power. Do you want God's dwelling place? Do you want God's presence? Or do you want something else you want? Well, Stephen insists that his accusers have missed the point of God's dwelling place. And it wasn't the first time that they or their ancestors had missed the point. And that takes us to our second point, the righteous one. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asks Stephen, Are these things so? Have you really been speaking words against the temple? Have you really been speaking words against the law? The law and the temple are incredibly sacred to us. How could you speak against them? Are these things so? And so Stephen answers them over the course of 52 verses. It is a massive speech. And I didn't include all of it in the sermon text for the sake of space and the worship booklet and time. You should read it all on your, your own time whenever you can. It's a great run through of redemptive history. Um, we're not going to get into each and every possible point in detail, but what I want to do is trace through Stephen's general argument, his main points. You know, initially, it doesn't seem like it might have anything to do with the law and the temple, but it does. Just a bear with me, um, or bear with Stephen, I should say. For most of the speech, Stephen focuses on heroes of the faith who predated the tabernacle and the temple, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. Technically, Moses overlapped with the tabernacle, um, but they all lived before the temple was built. And so 
Stephen is clearly trying to point out that the physical temple's importance is way overinflated in their minds. And he's also going to highlight, in the case of Joseph and Moses, how uh, they delivered God's people without a physical temple, and yet, as God's righteous servants, they were still treated poorly by God's people, rejected. And so, let's get into it. Stephen begins by going back to the start, to their common ancestry, the father of their faith, Abraham. Verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So I've been quoted verse 8. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. This is all basic stuff to the audience. They know this history like the back of their hand. And so Stephen is establishing common ground. He's saying from the get-go, hey, we all agree how our people got it started. Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 patriarchs, Jacob's sons. The 12 tribes of Israel got their start through the patriarchs. But then Stephen introduces a little bit of drama. He says in verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Stephen is saying, we all love Joseph, right? What a righteous man, what a hero of our people, a deliverer who saved his people. Remember how his brothers, our patriarchs, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, remember how the patriarchs betrayed their own brother and sold him into slavery. That's pretty messed up, right? We all agree that it's Great as our patriarchs were, they were wrong about that. That was a big mistake. This wasn't in the sermon text, but we know Joseph's story. Stephen goes on to tell Joseph's story. Uh, that even though Joseph's brothers betrayed him, humiliated him, he was eventually uh, given a position of power in Egypt, where he was able to save his own brothers from famine, the very brothers that betrayed him, the patriarchs that betrayed him. You know, the famous line from Joseph's story, Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And what the patriarchs meant for evil, God meant for good through his righteous servant, Joseph. And Stephen continues, and he goes on to keep talking through Israel's history. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt, but then a king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and so he enslaved the Israelites in Egypt. And so God raised up another righteous servant, another deliverer, Moses, to lead the people out of slavery, to lead them across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, and into the Promised Land. So Stephen is like, you all know Moses, right? We love Moses. He is one of our people's heroes. And then verse 35 through 40, he says this about Moses. This Moses, they rejected saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Our fathers, our ancestors, even they rejected Moses. They refused to obey him. You know, in Exodus, they made the golden calf. In Numbers, they tried to turn back to Egypt instead of entering the promised land. After all that Moses did to save them, they rejected him. They rejected God's righteous servant, Moses. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. And now Stephen puts the final nail in the coffin, verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Your fathers killed all the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one, and then you betrayed and murdered the righteous one himself. You killed Jesus. You who received the law did not keep it, and then you killed the righteous one, the only one who could keep the law. And Stephen is saying, you made the same mistakes your ancestors did, and God's righteous deliverer has been betrayed and murdered. The law can't save you from that. The temple can't save you from that. Your circumcision can't save you from that. Only one thing can save you now, and it's the righteous one himself. So repent and believe. Stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Let God circumcise you, not with a circumcision made by human hands, but a circumcision of your heart. You need the righteous one now more than ever. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need the righteous one. That's the climax of Stephen's speech. Jesus, the righteous one. You see why what started as accusations about Stephen's view of the law and the temple has passed to conclude with the righteous one, right? It's the only logical conclusion. Jesus, the righteous one, he's the answer. Why is the righteous one the answer to these accusations against Stephen? What does it mean to be righteous? It means to fulfill the law. Saying something is righteous means that it fulfills the law. Saying that someone is righteous means that they fulfill the law. And how do you fulfill the law? One of two ways. You either obey it perfectly, or you pay the penalty for not obeying it. So, you know, when you leave here today, when you drive out, you're going to encounter several stop signs. And uh, the law is that you have to stop. You fulfill the law by stopping, or by paying the penalty for not obeying the law, for not stopping, for running the stop sign, whatever the fine for that kind of ticket would be. You might think, well, there's a third way. What about all the times that I rolled through a stop sign but didn't get caught and no one gave me a ticket? Now, you may have gotten away with breaking the law, but that's not the same as fulfilling the law. There are only two ways to fulfill it. You have to obey it or you have to pay the price for not obeying it. And you might not care about fulfilling Fremont's laws, but God's law. You probably care a lot more about that. And, uh, you know, Fremont's police aren't everywhere, but... God is. God has a perfect accounting of all the proverbial stop signs that you have run. Those tickets need to be paid. And so your options are you can keep the law, but you already know that you don't because you can't. And so your other option is to pay the penalty. And you can kind of do that. 
But the penalty is death, eternal death, eternal being eternally cut off from God, the source of all life, eternal condemnation, hell, where Jesus says that there's a weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there actually is a third way. That's where the temple kind of comes back in here. You know, God gave the temple to Israel, not because they were righteous, but because they were not righteous, right? Like, you only need a place to make sacrifices for sin if you sin, if you're not righteous. And so the sacrificial system was a reminder that God's people were not righteous, that they needed their sins paid for, atoned for. And the reality was that the human priests offering repeated sacrifices weren't really paying for sins. Those were more like placeholders. They were pointing forward to a greater priest, the great high priest, the Lamb of God, the righteous one, to Jesus, who actually fulfilled the law, who was so rich in righteousness that he could both fulfill the law perfectly himself and still afford to pay the penalty of all our law breaking. And he'll do that for you if you believe, if you have faith, if you repent of your sins, if you admit that you were wrong, if you admit you have a problem, if you admit that you can't do what the law requires, if you admit that you can't afford to pay the penalty yourself and fall on your knees and admit you need someone else, you need the righteous one. Jesus will do that for you. Jesus is so rich in righteousness that he can afford to take your sins upon himself and pay the penalty that you owe. He can take your sin to the cross and die and destroy it to pay off your penalty in full. And then he's still so rich in righteousness that he has enough left over somehow to resurrect and give you his righteousness so that you can be holy and righteous in God's sight. So that God can look at you and see Jesus. God can look at you and see the righteous one. Because of Jesus, you can be the righteous one in God's eyes. You just have to repent and believe. And I'm sure most of you already have done that. But if you haven't, why not do it today? Repent and believe. The gift of the righteous one is free. It's even offered to the ones who betrayed and crucified him. If it's available to them, then it's certainly available to you. If you just repent and believe, the righteous one dies. He's willing to make his destiny on your behalf. Just have to repent and believe. How does the council respond to Stephen? Do they repent? Do they believe? No. Unfortunately, they do not. And that takes us to our final point, the great persecution. Imagine that you are at a classical piano concert. The most famous and talented pianist in the world is performing. Shows completely sold out. It's been highly anticipated. And you have seats nice and close to the stage. You're taking in the scene with anticipation. You're looking all around the concert hall. And suddenly, you realize that your four-year-old son is no longer sitting next to you. And adrenaline shoots through your veins. You stand up and you take a look in the row behind you. He's not there. Take a look in the row in front of you. He's not there either. And then the crowd starts to get a little quiet. They start murmuring. And you suddenly realize what they're whispering about. Your son has made his way to the stage and is headed straight for the grand piano. 
You start scrambling to get him. You're dreading the moment when the event staff inevitably escort you off the premises. But before you can get to him, he hops on the piano bench and begins to play what appear to be just random notes. And it sounds terrible. The ears of the entire concert hall are being persecuted. <laughs> right as you get up onto the stage, you see the famous pianist. Everyone came to see approaching the piano from behind your son. And you'd already accepted the embarrassment of fetching your son in front of the entire crowd. But now the cherry on top is facing a certain disdain from the pianist. But instead of yanking the child off the piano, he just stands behind him for a second. And he watches, and he listens. And then something incredible happens. He begins to play with him. What had initially sounded like a little boy banging on random keys on a piano had suddenly been accompanied by full chords and counter melodies, rhythmically and harmoniously transforming a little boy's rebellion into something beautiful. That's how our God works with us. Everything that is going wrong, when we face our own shortcomings and failures and rebellion, when others cause us pain and suffering and persecution, even death, God steps in and doesn't change history, doesn't necessarily change the circumstances, doesn't change what notes are being hit on the piano, but God steps in and accompanies it. He uses what's gone wrong as part of a bigger picture, a more redemptive picture. He reclaims what's gone wrong and uses it for his good and glorious purposes. You see a very similar thing happen with the stoning of Stephen and the great persecution that follows. Our passage says in verse 54 that when they heard Stephen's speech, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, which is probably a reference to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, like they're prefiguring their own judgment. And then verses 57 to 58, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They killed Stephen by stoning him. They followed the pattern that Stephen had pointed out, continually rejecting the deliverers and prophets that God sent them. Stephen essentially is telling them that they didn't have to keep that up. They could have broken the cycle, but instead they perpetuated it. Instead, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. They cried out with loud voices. They stopped up their ears. It, it would almost be funny if it weren't so tragic. They're acting like children. They put their fingers in their ears and repeat, I can't hear you. I'm not listening. Over and over. And then they kill him. They stone him. And Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church, killed for his faith in Jesus. We're also introduced to someone who will play a large role later on in Acts, Saul, known as the Apostle Paul. Still in verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul was ill. You know, some people think that one of the reasons we have such a lengthy account of Stephen's speech is because Saul was there and he remembered it and gave his eyewitness testimony to Luke when he was writing Acts. And obviously, in that moment, Stephen's speech did not convict Saul or lead him to repentance. It seems quite possible that it's what planted a seed. You even see similar lines of reasoning in Paul's writings. 
later on, you kind of trace some of Paul's theology back to this speech by Stephen. But for now, Saul is still set against Jesus and the church, and he's not the only one. Still in chapter 8, verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They were all scattered the regions of Judea and Samaria. And there it is, the transition into the next phase in the outline of Acts. We've been in Jerusalem all this time, but here, with the stoning of Stephen and the great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, the early Christians fleeing for their lives are scattered into Judea and Samaria. You know, we'll look into more detail the ministry and spread the gospel in these areas over the next several Sundays. Um, but I want to point out now what led to the spread of the gospel. Why did the gospel go forth into Judea and Samaria? Persecution. Persecution spread the gospel. Now, to quote uh, Tertullian, who's a second century church father, he says, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you mow us down, the greater numbers we spring up in. When you reap us, we multiply. The blood of Christians is like seed. It's Romans 8.28 in action. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't mean that the bad things weren't bad. It means that God is more powerful than the bad things, and the best is yet to come for those who love God. Stephen's stoning and the great persecution are just the start of the early church's explosion into Judea and Samaria, and eventually the end of the earth. I want to close by taking one last look at Stephen's final moments here. Now, where did Stephen find the courage to face the council, to make the speech that he did, to invite persecution and stoning and execution? Or take verse 49. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, as they're stoning him, where did Stephen find the faith to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? Or verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The final breath. Where did Stephen find compassion to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them? Where did he find the courage? Where did he find the faith? Where did he find the compassion? The key is in verse 56. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus and he's standing at the right hand of God. You know, you likely didn't give this a second thought. I want to draw your attention to something. Why is Jesus standing? The concept of Jesus being at the right hand of God is repeated in several places, but almost every single time, he's sitting. Acts 2, Acts 2, quote Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Mark 16, 19, From the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1.20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 10.12, our assurance of grace. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right 
hand of God. He's always sitting at the right hand of God. And so why here does Stephen say that Jesus is standing? He's standing because he's pleading Stephen's case. The, the throne room is a courtroom, and when a lawyer or advocate makes his case, he stands. When, when he speaks to the judge, he is standing. And so Stephen is seeing Jesus stand and plead his case. And don't get me wrong, the sitting is important. When Jesus sits, you know the work is done. But Stephen has the courage and the faith and the compassion that he does in his life's final moments because he can see Jesus working for him, standing for him, advocating for him. Jesus is standing before the throne saying, Stephen is one of my sheep. He's mine. I'm the righteous one. I took his sin to the cross. I gave Stephen my righteousness. Stephen is mine. And it's a perfect plea. It gets the judge's approval every time. It's a perfect plea, and it's your plea too, if you are in Christ. It's your plea too. So where can you find the courage? Where can you find the faith for you? Where can you find the compassion? By seeing Jesus stand up for you. By seeing Jesus advocate for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for me. My name is written on his hands, my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me pass the part. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your graciousness. Toward us. You are the righteous one. You are so good, Father, that you can take bad things and use them for your good. You are so righteous that you can take the sin of sinners to the cross and still resurrect and still give us your righteousness. Father, we pray for the reality that your Son is our advocate, that He stands up for us that sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. And give us courage, give us faith, and give us compassion. We pray these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.